Shift is brought to you by CCC. ADAS equipped vehicles are not difficult to find, but what do drivers really think? Are they sought during the buying process? Turned off? Are there opportunities to create positive customer experiences after damage? For these answers and more, visit cccis.com slash ADAS Perspectives. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm your host, Pete Bigelow. Hi, everybody. It's Leslie Allen, and welcome to the show. Joining us on the podcast today is Angus Pakala, the CEO of Ouster LiDAR. Leslie, LiDAR, a timely topic these days. It is a timely topic. You can see right through that one, Pete. So I know that you recently got a chance to examine some trends in LiDAR. I mean, there seem to be And I think we even point that out during our conversation with Angus. You need a scorecard to keep up with all of these LiDAR companies that are popping up. And you actually did something of a a scorecard for Automotive News. Can you tell us just from that experience and from that research, what kinds of trends are you seeing when it comes to, to LiDAR? You know, I think the big one is one that started a few years ago at CES where we we started hearing about LiDAR trickling down into uh, driver assist systems from, from systems that had been fully autonomous. Uh, and that trend is sort of in full force now. If, if we caught a glimpse of it two years ago, uh, I think the big news of the day is that LiDAR is, is kind of proliferating and will proliferate in the next few years at the driver assist level. Uh, and and, and that will help establish volume f- that drives down the price. That's the other kind of key point, I think, is the price for, for simple LiDAR solutions, let's call them right now, is, is sub $500 a unit. So those would probably be the two, two big things that I see right now. And I'm sure Angus will enlighten us further. But that, yes, Leslie, to your point, that was a big project that I worked on a few weeks ago where uh, you know we looked at maybe a dozen LiDAR companies and what's and what specifically they're up to these days. And uh, our listeners can find that on Auto News. Uh, another big project from Automotive News, uh, we should be remiss if we didn't mention it today. Uh, Leslie, is the, the latest Shift Magazine is out. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, in the latest Shift Magazine, which uh, publishes uh, on Monday, if you're listening to this on Monday, that'd be great. It's um, Our magazine comes bundled with Automotive News, and it's also available on the web autonews.com slash ship. We are looking at 5G. And we uh, a lot of these companies are, they seem to be super jazzed about fifth generation wireless. It was really a fun project to learn about what possibilities are out there for using 5G in the car, using 5G for safety purposes on the road. And also just some of the inside story about how these telecoms are working hard and jostling for position and being able to set up these 5G networks across the U.S. It was pretty fascinating. So I hope you get a chance to check it out. And I know, Pete, you did a few stories for that as well. well let me ask you this, Leslie, is from, from your experience in, uh, in leading us to this issue, is 5G for ultimately watching cat videos in our car and entertainment purposes or or what does it bring to to safety or or other aspects of of automotive and transportation 
Well, when you think about safety, automatically you think of CB2X, which of course is cellular vehicle to everything technology. That is something that has been discussed over the years. And now we're actually going to see a way to enable this to happen more quickly with a, with a higher speed network that allows companies to utilize the benefits of mobile edge computing and um, really kind of out. And I know you did a story on this, Pete, offload some of that computing uh, task from the vehicle itself to the edge of the network, um, close to the vehicle, but not on the vehicle. And so that's some of the, those are some of the things that we explore. Uh, we also explore the use of, of um, 5G for in-vehicle entertainment, the cat videos, like you mentioned, or whether it could be augmented reality in the vehicle, high definition mapping, or over-the-air updates. There's so much that is enabled by this technology. Yeah, maybe one of the things that I'll mention, Leslie, and maybe it pulls together is there's a lot of LiDAR companies uh, working in the smart city space, offering uh, you know, sensor inputs from intersections that, that kind of feed into that V to X environment that is now enhanced with 5G. Uh, so maybe, maybe Angus can tell us a little bit about that and much more. Uh, about uh, about the LiDAR business right now and where Ouster is is at these days. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation with Angus Pakala from Ouster. Angus, uh, great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. It's great to be here. For listeners who, who may be unfamiliar, just give us a quick intro to Ouster and, and kind of where Ouster fits into the, the crowded LiDAR field. Yeah, so Ouster is the first digital LiDAR company. Um, So we are a manufacturer of high-performance, all-weather, safety-critical LiDAR sensors. And we founded the company around this innovative uh, digital LiDAR technology. And that stands, you know, sets it apart from the analog technology that has dominated the industry really since the founding of LiDAR technology all the way back in the 50s. Um, and, the, and the core premise here is that we are integrating all of the complexity of these purpose-built analog systems that are composed of hundreds or thousands of discrete off-the-shelf parts into a single CMOS digital chip. Um, so it's, it's reduction in complexity, increase in performance, and, uh, and uh, improvement in the economics of the entire system by integrating all that complexity onto a silicon chip. And that's really the playbook of Silicon Valley for the last 60 years. And so we're just kind of following a long line of companies that have adopted the Silicon playbook to dominate kind of historically analog um, industries, whether it's CPUs, GPUs, telecom infrastructure, digital cameras, or now digital LiDAR sensors. Playing on that history, maybe I'll I'll take a quick detour here, but... uh... What is the history of LiDAR going back to the 50s or 60s? Like you mentioned, I think for, for many people, it starts with the DARPA challenges. So, so what was LiDAR being used uh, for in the decades before that, uh, long before autonomous vehicles came along? Yeah, I think so. The principle of LiDAR is very similar to radar or sonar or even echolocation. So once radar came around in, in World War II, you know, I think it was it was relatively quickly posited that you could do the same thing with light. And the idea here is emit some electromagnetic radiation, whether it's light or radio waves, 
time how long it takes for that radiation to bounce off an object, and you'll know the distance to that object. And uh, that's the same thing bats do with ultrasonic noise, right? Echolocation. And so in the 1950s, the first lasers were invented, and that was the missing link to be able to build the very first airborne LIDAR sensors. Um, and I think for the next basically 50 years, um, 40 or 50 years, it was mostly uh, a technology used in defense, you know, airborne systems for surveying um, and things like that. And, um, but then in the 90s, LIDAR started to become a safety critical sensor in the industrial sector, still based on kind of the same analog technology that had been used um, all through, you know, since the 1950s. Um, and, and then around in, in the early 2000s, the DARPA Grand Challenge came along and these industrial LIDAR sensors um, built for kind of safety critical uh, applications in, in industrial manufacturing processes were adopted by teams to try to drive cars around the desert. Um, and that spawned this kind of new opportunity for, for LIDAR sensors to become the eyes, the safety critical eyes of autonomy in general. And, um, you know, that's another big pillar for, for Ouster and a differentiator is just, or, you know, our view is that autonomy is this very broad trend that spans many, many different verticals. And everything that moves or watches something that move can benefit from digital LIDAR sensors that can perceive their, 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 the environment far better than a camera or a radar alone. Um, and, and that's what we're building for is really this broader autonomy space that was in some ways all started uh, back with the, the grand challenge. It's, it's funny because you seem to like be making the case that LIDAR is going to proliferate, yet you've said before that in just a few years, there's only going to be three to five LIDAR companies left. And you know, right now you need a, a scorecard to keep track of, of all the different entrants and where they fit in. So uh, why such a sharp decline and, and what are you doing to kind of ensure that Ouster is one of those survivors? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So <laughs> there are a lot, there are a lot of LIDAR companies today and that is any new industry, any new opportunity. It's like the gold rush, right? Thousands, tens of thousands of people all rush in to try to uh, capture a new opportunity. Um, and and that's the sign of an immature industry. The sign of a mature industry, especially in semiconductors, is having three to five players right, that have captured the majority or you know, significant portions of, of overall market share. And that's just, if you just look at semiconductor industries like CPUs or GPUs or telecom switching infrastructure, three to five players, pretty good kind of rule of thumb for where this should end up. Now, what's unique about LiDAR is that you know, I fully believe that there will be consolidation and there will be three to five players that went out. Um, but in LiDAR, we've had a number of companies go public and pull on huge amounts of money. And so they may be able to exist with very little market share, but just, you know, just a deep cash reserves as almost zombie-esque companies for years and years and years. And so it may appear that there are 10, 20 odd players um, in the market kind of existing as these zombie-like entities, um, but when in reality, they're shipping almost no product and maybe have a de minimis market share. Um, and then, you know, how does Auster, how does Auster win? It goes back to the technology, digital LIDAR, um, digital dominates. And that's true across industries going back 60 years. So we have all of these zombie companies, as you mentioned. So 
how will they disappear? I mean, are we, are we talking about mergers? Are they going to merge into other companies or um, just simply fall by the wayside? Um, well, well, so there's the companies that have gone public in the last year, um, which I think are the ones they pulled on significant funding and they're going to be the zombie companies. It's difficult to incentivize them to merge potentially with other companies. I think they may stay um, you know, on their own for a very long time. But there's also a large number of non-public ladder companies that are even earlier. Um, and there's many more of them. There's tens, um, maybe 50-odd companies all kind of chasing this opportunity in LIDAR. And those, I think, are, are probably more ripe for consolidation and mergers um, just because they don't have the cash reserves. Those companies probably won't be zombie companies. They'll, they'll be uh, acquisition targets. Out of all of these companies that are jostling for space in this, um, in this field, how many of them are direct competitors for you in terms of digital LIDAR? And um, so how unique basically is Elster in this field? Yeah, we're, we're the inventors of digital LIDAR. We're the first movers in the space. We're the only company that right now has this Vixel SPAD-based architecture. Um, SPAD is the CMOS digital uh, side, Vixels are the laser. We're the only company in the space that's currently um, selling these products. So, um, you know, we have, it's really important to be a first mover in semiconductors. You get exclusive access to partners and, um, and first mover advantage given the long design cycles. But I, um, I do expect that we'll have competitors in digital LiDAR long-term. It's inevitable. I think there will be far more digital LiDAR companies that are in that three to five, you know, the three to five winners long-term will be dominated probably by digital LiDAR companies. My job is to make sure that we're the biggest of all of them. Um, but I do expect, you know, that, that we will have digital LiDAR uh, competitors um, at some point. Angus, um, you know, using that first mover advantage, I know that Auster has shipped more than 6,000 LiDAR sensors at this point. Uh, is that the first mover advantage? And what is your, what is your production manufacturing um, strategy and footprint at this point? Yeah, the, the first mover advantage, it's, you could think about it as unit volume, um, but it, it's more that we're multiple generations of our silicon and our product um, we're, we're multiple generations into this cycle. So we released our first products in 2018 and, um, and we still don't have competitors you know, in, in this type of technology. And so that's a four year head start right there, or excuse me, a three year head start right there. Um, and that, that alone, you know, that means that we have just that much more maturity in our silicon architecture and our manufacturing systems um, in the conversations we're having with customers. You know, we have, over 600 customers today um, in, in you know, mid-2021, and, uh, and that's significantly more than most of our competitors. And so getting to market, locking in customers, and also locking in technology partners on the product roadmap side is really, really critical because you know, our, part, our, our suppliers want to work with the leading companies. And so success breeds success in that, in that sense. Obviously, on the Shift podcast here, we're, we're pretty focused on transportation, but I know that you are involved in lots of different sectors, uh, from smart cities to uh, industrial applications, et cetera. Can you give us a, you know, an idea of what are all the different sectors you are providing LiDAR for? And, and more so, like, what's the philosophy behind that diversification? Is that something that you're, you're purposely looking for these different streams and not counting on, 
on one versus the other? Yeah. So, so when I think about Ouster and, and what makes us special, I actually, there are three pillars. The first is digital LIDAR. The second is our diversification across industries, which I'm Oxford, Bigger, Tam. And then the third is actually our ability to execute, which we can talk about. Um, but, but that middle bucket is so important because um, that there is a much larger market here um, for autonomy and sensor technologies that fuel autonomy across industries. Um, I truly mean everything that moves, that flies, that rolls, that walks, um, that looks at stuff that's moving and trying to monitor the environment. Those are systems that can benefit from high-performance uh, digital ladder sensors. In the same way that there's been this revolution in digital cameras and that the overall TAM for, for imaging technology fundamentally shifted when digital cameras became a commercial you know, viable product in the early 2000s. That same shift is happening with digital LiDAR and it's super exciting. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's fundamentally, we want to be going after the biggest market possible. And that means that you have to play across markets. Um, so those four markets, it's robotics, industrials, smart infrastructure, and of course, automotive. Um, and uh, the challenge is, you know, building products that apply across those industries. And that's what Ouster has been able to do. That's what digital products are one of the things that's special about digital products is that they can hit the specs and the affordability that's required across industries. How do you build something that's scalable across the industries uh, and thinking like automotive and transportation is kind of particularly more difficult perhaps because it has to be automotive grade for, for safety critical applications. Is, does that present the challenge for, for Ouster or, or for anybody trying to uh, hit all these different verticals? Yeah, and this is this is an area I love to talk about because it's you know it's not actually quite what people expect. So I remember I said lidar sensors started showing up in the '90s um, in safety critical industrial applications. That was one of the first major kind of deployments of the technology outside of defense. And there is now today almost a billion dollar market for industrial lidar sensors that are used on mining equipment and manufacturing process equipment and forklifts and all this stuff. Um, to make that work more efficient and safer. Um, and so uh, there, there's this immense, op yeah, and, and so those are all safety critical, challenging applications that in many cases have to be uh, more stringent in terms of their quality and their lifetime performance and their environmental performance than even automotive. Um, you know, when a, a, mining, a mine in Siberia or, or, or in Australia um, can be blisteringly hot incredibly cold, um, you know, debris can be falling on the trucks that, that we're operating on. And that's more challenging than automotive. So um, it, that's, it's, it's, automotive is absolutely challenging. I have a lot of respect for the automotive industry, but the functional safety requirements exist outside of automotive as well. And that's really cool. There are synergies that we can take advantage of where we build the superset of functional safety requirements that span these industries. I'd like to uh, shift gears for just a moment and ask you about um, your corporate philosophy, basically. You've been trading publicly now for, what, about five, six months. And I'd like you to just walk us through your decision to go through the SPAC route versus, say, a traditional IPO. Sure, yeah. And um, this, is a, this is a question I get asked a lot because everyone wants to make sense of what's going on with SPACs. And, um, the, the, the overarching thing, first of all, 
uh, I'm incredibly thankful that that we went the SPAC route. It's been a great option for Ouster. Um, we've gotten an immense amount of exposure, credibility, and of course funding um, to fuel you know, our our forward our, our ongoing success. Um, but about this time last year, we were looking at we had to raise around three hundred million dollars, um, either privately or uh, through public markets, and the SPACs were the, a great vehicle to do to to, to make that raise. And to do it potentially faster and with all these benefits around visibility and credibility of a public company, um, than going the pi- private funding route. And so it really was just this practical, like, let's weigh these two options. One is faster um, and gives us more visibility. And it's just this kind of unique point in time to take advantage of. And so that's the route we went. It was a, a data-driven decision, I guess. Um, but but there is a it is a little bit of a double-edged sword which is, I think, why I get asked this all the time, because there's a very wide range in the quality of companies that have gone the SPAC route. And, um, and uh, this is something I'm pretty passionate about because I feel that Ouster is on the far end of kind of you know, real company, hundreds of customers, positive gross margins, outsourced manufacturing, um, you know, things that really are proof points in the market that, you know, we're not talking about hypothetical things that are going to happen in five years. We we really want to be the, the company that, that has came and come in and, and uh, build a credible and, and real company day one. So what's it like having to answer to shareholders now? I mean, has that been a big change for you in terms of your day-to-day um, work and how you approach people? Um, you know, it's I've always had to talk. You're talking to investors one way or another. Um, if you're starting companies you know, and they're either private investors or public, now it is a different. It's a different interaction. There's lots more process and regulation around how we interact with investors, and that's been a really interesting learning experience. Um, I also kind of uh, I uh, I have a lot of respect after talking to to investors and analysts for the last five six um, odd months. Um, there's a lot of really kind of good research that is done in order to make these investments, and that it was an appreciation I never really had. Um, yeah, just always having worked at private companies. So I think it's been a great uh, and really interesting learning experience. Angus, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned your 600 plus customers, I think that you're working with. One of the big ones that uh, that sticks out to me is the, the one that you recently announced with Plus, the automated trucking company. And I kind of think of, of trucking as, as a, you know, one of the first practical waves of, of autonomy that we'll see on, on roads. Uh, how did that partnership come about and what is the what is the potential you see with uh, plus in particular and maybe trucking in general yeah so um, you know automated trucking is just plain cool like the trucks are huge they're doing really productive work um, uh, so much of, of the United States the freight is moved by these vehicles so it's a really cool op- application and plus you know we've had a pretty long um, uh, relationship with Plus. They've been testing our sensors for well over, I think almost over two years now. Um, so they started by doing a year-long, nearly a year-long um, on-road test of our sensors head-to-head with a number of other LiDAR sensors. And this gives you a little bit of a sneak peek on you know, how you win customers. Um, and they were looking at you know, things like durability and performance across a wide range of conditions and, and a long duration of time. And at the end of that, 
you know, the affordability came into the mix, you know, as they're looking at affordability, durability, lifetime performance, and, and then just raw performance. And, um, and we stood apart. And that's just kind of the benefit of the digital technology. It's more robust, it's more affordable, and it's more performant. Um, and so now we're doing, I think, the, the world's largest kind of binding deployment of LiDAR sensors, um, certainly in robo-trucking, but I think in kind of all of, of, of uh, automotive. Um, and that's 1,000 trucks, uh, 2,000 sensors, so two, two sensors per truck. And they're working with end customers like Amazon on this. So it's a really big deal. Um, and, 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 and then in terms of kind of what's driving this, one of the things that's exciting about robo-trucking is just that there's this near-term opportunity to get the technology into production because it's a retrofit. Um, you don't have to build the technology into the trucks at the OEM manufacturer. Uh, these trucks are owned and operated by large companies that understand that, you know, want to invest in their fleets and make them more productive and more cost-effective. And so they can retrofit. And that's what we're doing with Plus. It's what's happening with a lot of other robo-trucking customers. And it just means we can get the technology immediately on the road. Um, and then there, the other dynamic that's driving robo-trucking is that the ROI is so clear. I mean, you can save on fuel, on, on safety, and on efficiency, kind of uptime of the fleet. Um, and, and if you save one you know, one to two percent even on the overall costs of running a ten thousand vehicle fleet. That is so immensely valuable for customers like Amazon or Walmart or any of these big distribution chains. And so that that sophistication of the customer and the understanding of like one or two percentage points of value gain um, is also driving adoption now versus uh, five years from now. We're going to take a short break from our conversation with Angus for a word from our sponsor. As OEMs innovate and consider how and when to offer sophisticated ADAS to their drivers, it's not clear how consumers will respond. Research indicates consumers remain skeptical of this emerging technology. Understanding barriers to widespread acceptance and adoption is critical for OEMs to not outpace demand. Opportunities exist to educate drivers on how these features can improve their time behind the wheel. And when complex ADAS features are damaged, a simplified path to a positive repair experience can build customer trust and satisfaction that help drivers remain in the OEM family and get back on the road faster. Find this research, analysis, and more at cccis.com slash ADAS perspectives. And now back to our conversation with Angus Pakala. So you've hit on kind of cost as, as a big uh, differentiator when, when customers are choosing between LiDAR companies. And we hear about range, resolution. Um, the one that's underappreciated to me and I'm hoping you can shed some light on is, is power consumption. Uh, where does that fit into the mix? How often do you hear about that being kind of a key priority and, uh, and how much power do, do your sensors draw exactly? Yeah, and, and so this touches on this idea that you know, there are many different facets to performance. Um, it's not just range or resolution or field of view or power draw. It's actually all of those things for a lot of customers that matter. Um, and you know, our goal is to be the best across every one of those metrics. And you can look just just look at digital cameras to know that that's actually possible. You know, a digital camera is the lowest power, most durable, highest resolution, best imaging technology, CMOS digital cameras specifically. 
Um, and they're so good that you can build one that goes on a drone that's flying around Mars. And that same technology is working in your iPhone and is working in your car and is working in, you know, a, a, tele- a telescope uh, that's, you know, imaging the stars. And so it's really amazing how flexible and capable digital technology can be. And so our goal is to be the best in class across all metrics. And so power draw, and, and, that, and that's how we can play across industries, right? Flexibility, best in class specs across all these capabilities means that we can draw the most customers. Um, so we have the most power efficient sensors on the market. Um, power efficiency measured as power in versus data points out is really how we measure it. Um, so power per data point. Um, so best in class there, you know, smallest sensors on the market, lightest weight, um, highest resolution and, and widest field of view, kind of that complete, and then, and then most reliable. And we have a standard two-year warranty. So the goal is to be best across all, all axes and, uh, and uh, you know, incorporating everything onto a single silicon chip is really the key to making that all happen. Now, where do you see the automotive field turning when it comes to LiDAR? I mean, a lot of people are saying there should be more focus on level two technology, ADAS uh, in particular, or and others are focusing most of their efforts on level four and robotaxis. I'd be curious to see what you think, uh, where you think the industry is going to go. I think this is one of the coolest things that's happening in auto tech right now. Obviously, EVs is really, really interesting. But then this battle between established you know, tier one and OEMs that are building L2 systems and new players coming in and trying to race to L4 systems. And they're trying to see who's going who's gonna to get there first and uh, you know, hypothetically dominate the other um, is super fascinating. Um, I've set up Ouster so that we don't have to predict who's going to win, right? Uh, we're trying to sell and we are selling lighter sensors to both these applications. And I don't want to be put in the position where I have to make some sort of existential bet on one or the other and uh, and be wrong. It's better to be you know selling the pickaxes and the gold rush, um, uh, so to speak. So, but I think it's been amazing to see how established automotive is way harder than something like smartphones and and the cell phone industry and consumer electronics. And I think if you asked people a decade ago, even myself, I would have said, oh, auto automakers are going to be caught flat-footed, tech companies are going to roll in and dominate AFEATS L4. And it's that's just not the case. Um, automotive is so much harder, the state of criticality of it, the diversity of kind of situations in the environment. And um, and so I, I love that it actually really is this unknowns and and that and, uh, and, and, and I like that people are building, there's more appreciation in Silicon Valley uh, after 10 years of, of trying to build automotive technology for how sophisticated automakers are and building safe and affordable cars. Yeah, I recently saw a program where you, um, you pointed out that there were some differences between working with automotive customers versus mobility customers. Can you enlighten us a little bit on that? I thought that was a fascinating discussion. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is all couched in like, I, there's reasons for the differences. Um, and that's, and that's, you know, that's what we're talking about. So, um, and, and each is trying to be a little bit, so the new mobility cu- customers are trying to be more like auto automakers and the automakers are trying to be more nimble, like the new mobility players. Um, and you can see that 
happening when you, when you interact with them. So, um, but, but, um, you know, th- th- there is, I think there is, there's so much upfront work done by automakers to make sure that they're not going down some wild goose chase with the technology. And I think that's actually one of the, and so that naturally makes, there's, there's so much information requested and that the, the quoting process and the, the diligence process is incredibly heavy um, from automakers or tier ones when you're interacting with them to the point where you're like, wow, I've, you know, never interacted with a customer set that is so, you know, almost demanding. Um, but there's a reason for it because they, they don't want to make billion dollar mistakes on rolling out technology that doesn't work. And that takes five years for them to develop. Um, and so, and then on the other side, there's mobility players where, you know, they're willing to try things immediately when they could buy, you can sell them a product and they'll have it on their vehicle for testing in you know, the next day, maybe. And they're willing to deploy a pilot fleet with drivers in the loop, mind you. So you know, this isn't like fully automated uh, technology and that's the big caveat, but they're willing to kind of like get the technology out, see what works and iterate and iterate and iterate. Um, but this is all couched in the fact that everything has driver in the seat really at this point. Um, and, and so, yeah, and so they're more open to not meeting every spec um, that is absolutely required and, and kind of working to see the, the technology progress and giving kind of the benefit of the doubt almost um, to customers or to, to, to suppliers like us in some cases. Angus, this is uh, decidedly a West Coast question, but has the uh, semiconductor shortage impacted ouster and or, you know, to the best of your view, uh, the, the LiDAR industry in general? You know, I know for a fact that this shortage is affecting the LiDAR industry in general. Um, as it pertains to Ouster, we've done a really good job of securing the supply we need um, to, to ship to our customers this year. But it's something that I talk about every day with investors, every day with analysts, and every day with our team internally. Um, and so, you know, we are making sure that the, that supply outstrips demand and that it stays that way for the year. Uh, since it is, it is kind of this unprecedented situation and it, it does kind of like go to, sh- I don't know, it puts things in perspective when, um, the world just can't produce enough of something that everyone needs. It definitely makes me feel a little smaller. Um, Changing gears a little bit, you mentioned earlier the DARPA challenge. And if I, if I remember correctly, that's kind of, uh, I forget if you were already at Stanford at that point or, or maybe even beforehand, but that, just watching that from afar seemed to have a big impact on, on, your, on your worldview and uh, you know, what you wanted to spend your time working on. Is, is that right? And how did you get into this? Yeah, that's actually, that's, that's absolutely right. So the Nova special, the DARPA Grand Challenge, the great robot race um, came out in 2006 and uh, it was just incredibly captivating for me. I think partially because I'm a big Baja 1000 fan and I just love off-road desert racing. And then to see these big, powerful robots doing it um, and the engineer, it's just inspiring for the, the engineering. Lead. And so and, and, and again, what I saw was industrial ladder sensors being repurposed to drive those vehicles. And some of the best vehicles in the race um, used lighter sensors really, really significantly. And, um, and, and so that was, that was this jumping off point. You know, I was interested in the, the autonomy technology in general because of that. And then 
LiDAR specifically because it was this, it was the technology that was the least mature, um, but that clearly had the most potential to impact the end results. And so did you go to Stanford then, uh, like with light, you, not to you know, use this terrible pun, but were you laser focused on, <laughs> on uh, LiDAR from that very start for that exact reason then, or did you kind of fall into it further? I, I did actually, I, it not, maybe not laser focused on, on that as the only, you know, the only thing, but I did write my, uh, essay, my Stanford essay about the DARPA grand challenge, um, as it so turned out. And so I was very interested. So, so actually for people listening, Stanford won the 2006 DARPA grand challenge, Sergey Brin's group there. Oh, excuse me, not Sergey Brin, um, Oh gosh, I, I'm uh, going to blow over the name. Sebastian, um, Sebastian Thrun. Yeah, Sebastian Thrun. Excuse yep. me. Yeah, Sergey Brin. Then you know, Google uh, went, went went on to work with Sebastian Thrun. Um, so yeah, so so Stanford won it, and it was really interesting to go to the place where uh, that, that that won the event. Um, and and so and then out of school, you know, well, actually, my degrees were in mechanical engineering, then mechatronics. Mechatronics really is. Uh, about building robotic systems, complex electromechanical sensor-laden um, systems that rely heavily on software. And that's what an autonomous vehicle is. Um, and so then I had kind of the training to go out into industry and, and to start work in LiDAR. And so now, Angus, you have this vision, as you've expressed to us, of um, putting LiDAR on every moving object in some way or another. And is there a certain price point where that will be possible? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's so there the 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 price point. I mean, you can look to digital cameras. I guess that's the really good example. There there are digital cameras that span like you know fifty cent digital cameras, and uh, that are almost disposable, all the way up to multi thousand dollar digital cameras, and they all have their use. And we are playing. And, and, and intend to continue to play in the, you know, I don't know, hundred plus dollar regime, hundred all the way up to $10,000 regime for digital ladder sensors. That's where the safety criticality is. That's where the outdoor challenging, um, you know, adverse weather condition environments are. That's where all the really sophisticated customers are. And that's where I think you can improve quality of life the most. So safety criticality, like stopping accidents, stopping workplace injuries, um, improving traffic, and and you know, uh, and and the intelligence of uh, and of uh, or improving roadway safety, um, uh, the Vision Zero project, you know, reduced having no roadway or pedestrian accidents in this country, you know, that all is uh, where hundred dollar spanning up to ten thousand dollar digital ladder sensors will will be playing, um, and so that's where we're going to play. But there's going to be and already are actually some consumer grade lighter sensors um, that will fill that hundred dollar to ten dollar um, spot. And you know the iPhone twelve has a lighter sensor. Angus, it's uh, it's been great having you on the podcast today. I know we've uh, jumped around a bit, hit a lot of different topics. Uh, any closing thoughts or anything that we missed? No, I mean I just I I want to open people's eyes to the the broader up opportunity here. That's like one of the main messages I want to get across. This is a, a really interesting space that spans um, many verticals. It's a lot of the same technology that has been, there's been investment in automotive that's now propagated to all these other verticals and it's going to make 
um, all of those verticals and applications more efficient, safer, and improve quality of life. We touched on this a little bit before, but is is there any one of those verticals that you see as uh, as the one with like the most near term growth potential that that you see, let's say by like twenty twenty five, is going to be the one that's you know have have grown the fastest over over these next uh, three or four years? I don't know. I think it's a toss up. That all of these these verticals are growing quickly for different reasons, but you know, by 2025, can we have a large percentage of the intersections in North America deployed with intelligent sensors that improve traffic and make sure that you don't get hit crossing the road? Um, that's an immense opportunity. Um, but likewise, maybe there will be hundreds of thousands of delivery robots rolling around delivering new packages um, in that time frame as well. And that could be an equal or, or greater opportunity as well. So uh, it, uh, I'm not here to be the Oracle, but I know that they're both amazing, ma- amazing opportunities. Well, thank you again, Angus. Great to uh, talk with you and, and look forward to hearing more from you and Ouster going forward. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Pete. And thanks, Leslie. This is great. Thanks so much to Angus for joining us on the podcast today. Leslie, uh, enjoyed that one. Felt like I learned a lot about where, where Ouster uh, sits in this crowded field. Certainly. And his whole vision of having pretty much everything that moves be enabled by LIDAR. That's, that's pretty fascinating. And it will be interesting to see whether their strategy of focusing on digital LIDAR will help them stand out in the crowd. That's right. We'll have to have uh, Angus back on at some point here in a year or two to uh, see how those plans come together. Uh, more in the short term, Leslie, we should uh, let people know that we have we have two podcasts coming out. One is directly related to our 5G magazine issue, issue that we previously mentioned. Do you want to uh, give us some details on, on who our guest is on the 5G topic? Well, just a, a brief preview. We are going to be speaking to two executives from a company called Umlaut. And it's, not, it's just like the punctuation mark. They are Umlaut is a company that specializes in engineering and consulting, and they were recently acquired by Accenture. They are going to be talking to us about 5G. They do lots of studies, lots of benchmarking studies on 5G. Uh, if you hear a commercial where somebody says, we have the most reliable 5G network, blah, 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 a lot of times they're citing data from this company. So we're going to talk to them not only about 5G, but we're also going to touch on a new study that they've done on digital cockpits and cars. So that should be pretty interesting. And um, after that, Pete, can you tell us about our next guest? Sure thing. In our our regular weekly shift podcast on next Monday, we're talking to Claire Jones, the chief operating officer of microlocation company, What Three Words? Uh, You know, I I think that's going to be a topic that we've not explored yet but uh, should prove to be very interesting. So looking forward to it. Uh, Hope our listeners join us again next week. Thanks to our producer, Eric Jones, as always. And, uh, And that's it for today.